You are listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. All right, so I want to ask you this morning to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We are going through a series, four weeks long, this is week two, about how to study the Bible. Let me say to you that, uh, hey, I need your prayers. This is a uh, difficult text. It has been for millennia, and it has been especially in recent days in the U.S. In the last hundred years, I would say it might have even increased. Uh, You pray for me as I preach it. You pray for me as I endure what comes after it. And uh, I ask that you would also ask the Lord how you need to change accordingly. Every one of us needs to change according to the truth every time we open the Word. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to do that as we go throughout this time and as we leave this place for the sake of His glory, for our being built up, and for the sake of Jesus' fame. Let me say this as we go to you. I wouldn't normally in my mind think that I'd be here today or in this series where we're going to actually teach people how to study the Bible. I'd just be preaching the Word. But I think there's no better place than when we're all gathered together than to go through how to do this. And in times such as these where you've always been the one responsible for your own walk with the Lord through the Holy Spirit, but now we want to equip and empower you. That is our role as leaders in this church is to equip and empower the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so we are continuing in that process this week. Last week we talked about observation. There are three pieces to how to study the Bible. As I gave it out real simply, there's three pieces. The first is observe, the second is interpret, and the third is to apply. Okay, the third is to apply. Now I know that that's much simpler than what it really is. It's a lot to it. And we're going to work through those pieces today. Let me say this. Don't think you have to keep up with me in the notes. If you want the notes, email us at hope at 12th.co. Send us a message, call, text message me. You can get these notes. We give them out to you. Okay? So write them down if you wish. If you stay with us. But if you get lost, it's okay. Just stay in the Word with me. Just stay in the Word with me. Uh, We're going to talk about how to study the Bible today. We're going to look at a really difficult passage. Uh, This passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. I'm going to go back in verse 33. A good thing to know, you study the Bible. Did you know that the numbers weren't in there before? The numbers, the verse markings? Those were added much later. I mean, Paul didn't write a letter to the church at Corinth and number all the sentences. Okay, he didn't do that. It was a letter, a real letter. And then went back later for ease of use and teaching and put numbers in there. And they messed this one up a little bit because they, they took and made one sentence out of two thoughts that should be a little separated. So it actually starts in the middle of verse 33 and verse 34 and verse 35. Look at it with me. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, if that didn't already get you, (laughs) pray for me. (laughs) Secondly, uh, this text has been misused, abused, and totally destroyed in interpretations. I use that word lightly here, for generations. It has been used as a hammer to domineer over women. It has been used in a way to denigrate uh, femininity, women. It has been used to be heavy-handed at home, in relationships, 
between husbands and wives, or even with children. And I'm here to tell you today that none of those are the right ways to read the Bible ever. Ever. The Word of God is meant to draw us to relationship with God because of His great love for us that He would give us Jesus. And so anytime we read the Scriptures, it should draw us to see His love for us and then draw us to align ourselves with Him and to repent of any sin in our lives and to align ourselves with His truth. We talked about it last week that every single word in the original autographs was chosen by God through broken people. His perfect word was written. Every single word. We call it verbal plenary inspiration. He chose every word on purpose. And I want you, I ask you today to endeavor with me to understand how we can see this in the context that's meant to be seen and how we can then act together as the church in light of this and also individually. So let's back up a little bit and talk about how to study the Bible. I'm going to review last week real brief. The first part we talked about was observing the text. You try to put in your powers of observation, right? I don't know if any of you have kids or ever watch PBS. My kids like to watch a, uh, a cartoon that's not always a cartoon. It starts off with two guys, and they are exploring things about animals. And what they do for the whole first half of the cartoon is observe, observe, observe. And then they make power suits to become like that little animal, okay? Now, I, I've learned that my kids are great at observation, but I think as we get older, we don't do so well at it. Okay, so let's take a minute and understand how to observe. First, get a good Bible translation, a word-for-word translation to use as your primary text. That would be the New King James, the ESV. Uh, You could also use the New American Standard Bible. Those are good translations to have as a primary text, word-for-word translation. Also, get yourself a great study Bible. I think the best is the ESV study Bible. Get you a copy of that digitally or in hard paper format. Secondly, ask good questions. The questions you grew up, remember in in grammar school, who, what, when, where, why, and how, ask those questions of the text like we did last week. Go back and review that. Then ask questions of your observations there. Go down as deep as you can go in your study until you get a fully great, all-encompassing understanding as you pray every part of the way. And as you do that, look for what the, the Word of God emphasizes. It does that through the verbs and sentences that drive everything. It does that through the amount of space allotted to a text. Really funny, this week's text about women is really short in the context of a larger bit of Scripture about something that, if you read it by itself, doesn't seem to even be discussed here. Okay, so that's going to be really a key for us. Look at repetition, exaggeration, the tone of the letter, the tone of the author, the tone of the Word of God. And then lastly, in your observation, write out the passage in your own words to make sure you really understand it. For we know, those of us who like to teach, you know that you really don't get it until you're able to teach it effectively. And that's the way you can write it down in your own words, kind of rephrasing it. And then we move into today's topic, which is interpretation, to interpret. Okay, so you observe all these things about the text, then you interpret the text. Let me just break this down briefly as we get into this, and let's see how we interpret. So let me give you a definition. Interpretation, and what we're talking about in studying the Bible, is understanding the meaning of the text at its exegetical level. That's the $10 word for today. There's two of them today. Exegetical is the one right now. So what I mean by that, okay, is that the exegetical level means understanding it in the context of the original author to the original audience. God spoke these words through a man who wrote them down to to a particular people in a particular set of time, okay? So we want to interpret what that is. If you don't understand that, you can never really rightly apply the Word of God to your current context. So we have to understand it in its context as written. So let me tell you this, considering the context, 
context, the, the, where it was written, who it's written to, how it's written, the area in which it's written within this particular passage, in, in light of the whole letter even to the church at Corinth, the context is the number one factor in determining meaning apart from in addition to the Holy Spirit. It's the number one factor of what you can do to get to the real meaning of the text. It's hugely important. I'm going to say it like this. The Bible is literature, because you read it, it is. We like to be careful how we say these things, but it is. It's literature based in history that communicates a theological message. Okay? It communicates a theological message based in history. Now, it's literature because it's God's written word to us. We read it. Okay? It's divinely inspired, but it's still literature. And so all the rules of literature apply because he made those rules up. That's how it goes. He wrote according to the rules he set forth in that. And it's also historical context because it was written to particular people at a particular point in time, and it has a theological message, a message about God to us. Remember, it's about him more so even than it's about us. It's to us, but it's mostly about him. So let me restate what interpretation is. Interpretation seeks to understand the meaning of the text at its exegetical level, that is, what the text was intended to convey by its original author to its original audience. You have to get down to understand it. That's why a study Bible is so helpful to understand an introduction to letter. Who was he writing to? When was he writing it? What was going on in that point in time at that particular church when he was writing the letter? And we're going to break this down into three parts. We're really going to cover two of them today because one of them, I'm not going to break out all my commentaries up here for you, okay? I know some of you are disappointed. If you want commentary suggestions, go and listen to our podcast that we do uh, weekly. You can listen that we give commentary suggestions in there. But here's what you do. First, consider the context. Consider the context. You see the other $10 word up there. Exegesis versus eisegesis. You may not realize this, but most of us do one of these two things all the time when we read the scripture. And most of us land in the world of eisegesis just because we are broken, sinful people and we make mistakes. Okay, so exegesis, the first two letters there, ex, means to come out of. Okay, eisegesis, the first three letters there, isa, means to go into. So when we do proper interpretation of Scripture, we try to get rid of all of our presuppositions as much as we can, the things we bring to the text that color our understanding, and we say, let the word speak out to me. Okay, we exegete, let the word come out. That's why we study so hard to understand it in its original context so it can speak out to us. Eisegesis is when you take all these thoughts and cultural things in your brain and how you're brought up and you read them into the text when they're not there. It's very dangerous, it happens all the time. In fact, if you flip on the TV and watch preachers, that's what happens more often than not. It just happens to be that way. I don't know why those guys get the followings, but eisegesis happens often. It's not always in purpose, but it happens often. Watch out for me doing it. You're to leave here today reading this, studying this on your own to make sure the truth was spoken, and then you follow the Lord in the truth, okay? Exegesis versus eisegesis. Consider the context. Secondly, conduct, this is big words, interpretive thematic, thematic correlations. In other words, let Scripture interpret Scripture, okay? This is the, the, the greatest part. The Bible will tell you what the Bible's saying if you just read it. We're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. That's why I lace these sermons with bunches of Scripture because you need to see that the Bible's saying this in more than just one place. Right? And then thirdly, we do commentary consultation. I, I would actually say that's, that's where we stand on the shoulders of the men and women who have come before us who love Jesus and have been studying this word before we got here. 
We do not let go of that. We go back and read, what do the early church fathers say? Well, what did the people say in the Reformation about this text? What do they say about it recently? These conservative theological guys, what do they say about it? We want to understand that, and sometimes it's helpful. In fact, if you went and read this on your own, you'd be like, what does this mean? What's the context? You go and read commentaries, there are probably about 20 different arguments about what this is talking about exactly. Okay, so pray for me. <laughs> pray for me. And let me tell you this, if you're looking in some commentaries, you're looking in old school stuff, newer stuff, and it's conservative theological stuff, and you read it, and you find nowhere in there your interpretation of that text, if nobody's thought of it in 2,000 years, you're probably wrong. It happens to me sometimes. I get in there, and I'm like, ooh, I was way off on that, right? Only by the leading of the Holy Spirit and by standing on the shoulders of those that have come before us can we do it well. So let's look at this text. Look at it with me again. Chapter 14. 1 Corinthians, verse 33. We'll start halfway in 33, go through 35. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. All right. Now, if you ever open the Bible and just read two verses like that, two and a half verses like that, you have failed at the effort to study the Bible. You need to, I would argue, if you're going to read and study 1 Corinthians, you need to go back and read that about 25 times before you start breaking down the word. You need to get the overall feel of the letter, the tone of the letter. You need to see that you understand the overarching themes in the letter. The study Bibles can help you, but don't let that change the fact that you need to read, pray, read, pray, read, pray, read, pray. The Holy Spirit is the illuminator of our minds for Scripture, okay? So go back and read that 25 times. If we're talking about Genesis, you don't have to read it 25 times, five times. Okay, if it's Jude, read it like 100 times. It's like one page, right? Get into the text. Let's look at the greater context now. What's the immediate context of this passage? We're going to go, your Bible's helpful a lot of times where it divides up with kind of headings to give you kind of a pericope, one group of verses that kind of say one major point, right? So we're going to look at that here in chapter 14, starting in verse 26. You'll notice in a lot of your Bibles it says orderly worship, giving you kind of a title for the passage. It's right on in this one, in this instance. Here we see verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has, has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Okay, it's really important that you see that there. In fact, if you go back and look at verse 40 real quick, jump down there, it says this. But all things should be done decently and in order. Okay, so let all things be done for building up, encouraging, building up the body. Let all things be done decently and in order. He's sandwiching the whole passage in those two things, because those are the guiding principles for how we understand what's being said. Go back to verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn let someone interpret. This is giving rules for how to speak in tongues. We won't get into that today. That's not our point. But he says, if you're going to do it, it's got to be no more than three, and there must be an interpreter. Verse 28. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Now, here's our even more so immediate context. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Or if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So he's talking about prophets and prophesying. Make sure we're clear here. I don't believe here he's talking about a new revelation from God that's not in the scriptures, okay? 
I do think, though, that when people are praying and seeking the Lord, sometimes you can have the Lord place something on your heart for somebody else. Sometimes He can place something in your, in your mind as you're studying Scripture that you need to share to a congregation. And, and, and even if not that, He does that for us here as this church as we pray and seek the Lord for what we should preach on and what we should teach on. And so as He guides us and makes that clear, that's called prophesying in the sense of this, which means exposing the Word, interpreting the Bible for somebody, sharing with them the truth of Scripture. And here we see that this should be done in an orderly way. And He talks about how it's very important He says, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Now we know what he's saying there is let them examine and make sure it's real, that it's right. So leaders in this church are meant to do that whenever anybody speaks from this pulpit. We're to make sure it's right and true and hold each other accountable. We know that's especially for those who are also prophets because he said, verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, okay? So he's saying when somebody preaches the word or speaks over the congregation, then the other people who are preachers, speakers of the word need to take that into consideration and say, is that truly right? And if so, you agree with it. So you weigh it to see if it's true and right and good, Okay. And those who are preachers are the ones who are supposed to do that, the prophets, those who have the gifting of that, those who are the overseers of the church. All right, so he goes on in verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And as in all the churches of the saints, this applies everywhere, today, in all the churches, not just to Corinth, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Is anybody else hot under the collar here? Or was it from you, listen, he says Corinth, or was it from you that the word of God came? The answer is like, no, of course not. Or are you the only ones that has reached? Like that you have the only interpretation here, that you're the only ones doing it right? The idea is you should be listening to what all the churches together see as the interpretation of Scripture. Verse 37, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Right? So the context here is that everything done when we gather together as the church should be done decently and in order for the building up of the church for the building up of the church. So let me say it like this then. When the church is gathered, let all that is done be done in an orderly way, and specifically when someone is prophesying, let the prophets weigh what is being said. Okay, that's the overall premise here in the midst of this. So let's talk about the historical context. When we said it's a literary book, that's in a historical context when it was originally written, Right? What's the historical context in Corinth? Now, if you go back and look in your study Bible in the beginning of the the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter, you get a lot of information that's really helpful. I like to call this church uh, what another pastor once called it, which is the church gone wild. It is ridiculous. I mean, chapter 5, they're talking about uh, how Paul's saying, you should take that guy who's in an adulterous relationship with his stepmom at best. And send him out of the church for the hope that he'll repent and believe. Right? Take this in your own hands. Otherwise, the leadership had failed. They weren't doing the right job. We see it in other places where they're arguing over speaking in tongues. And they're all about these ecstatic gifts and these great things. He says, that's not as important as preaching the word. 
That should be first and foremost. These other things are tertiary. They're not as important as that. And do all things in love. We like to take that and use it for weddings. It's not for that, but you can talk about that for weddings. But do all things in love, chapter 13, right? Where we talk about where, where he's talking about it <laughs> to the people in Corinth. They are so messed up in how they're living as Christians, put in quotes, that they are actually coming in early and getting drunk off the wine and getting full off the bread instead of waiting around for everybody to get there and they use up all the communion elements. Right? Because that's why he talks about it in chapter 11 that we quote all the time. We take communion together saying to men how I miss communion, guys, man. They say it all the time, right, about this is how you do it. He's trying to help the church because they're doing things wrong, the historical context. And here we see he speaks out to these women. Why would he do that? Well, let me give you a little context. In this area of the world, there were these temples of Dionysus and others where there were prostitutes in the temple. You wanted to pay homage. You went and you would be with a prostitute. You would pay money and people would prophesy, especially women would prophesy. And people would yell out at them and try to get them to answer their questions in this prophecy. And it was just big confusing thing going on. And so that's part of the context of the culture in which this group of people that came to faith are coming out of. All right, And we also could see here by some of the clues in the text that maybe it looks like that some of the ladies might be not just saying things about the, the prophecy, but also maybe asking tons of questions about it that may be distracting. And he's kind of saying, hey, don't do that here. Like, can you imagine what it would be like if we just had a free-for-all in here every time somebody got to preach the word? How confusing that would be, how frustrating that would be? And so for whatever reason here, he points out to the women and he says this. We're not exactly sure of the exact context. We know he speaks to the women directly and he says these things. Basically, women were likely speaking into the weighing of prophecy, questioning the prophets, disrupting the gatherings, causing confusion. Now, you're not doing that. So how does this apply to you, right? There's some clues to that. It does apply to us, but there's some caveats. It's really strong words when he says, the women should keep silent and the churches are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law says. So what's the law talking about there? Well, he's referring to all the stuff in the Old Testament about this. You go back to Genesis 127 even where he says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All right? So let me make sure we're clear about this up front. That men and women are equal in essence and value to the Lord. Equal in essence and value. Just like the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in essence and value. They have different roles, and we've been given different roles as men and women, but they're equal in value. We're equal in value, even if we have different roles in the economy of creation that God has given us. Genesis 2, 21 through 25. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took out one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I always say he should be called, Whoa, man, look at her, right? He'd been looking at all these animals, not found a helpmate suitable for him. And then finally the Lord said, I'm going to make him a helper. It's the language he uses in the scripture. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So even before the fall, there were distinctions, right? Different roles even given. She was the helpmate to him. Very important language. So the theological context is also included, not just the historical context, the theological context. We look at other scriptures, let scripture interpret scripture to understand this text about women speaking in the church. 
See, one of those things is that men are given the role of overseers or elders in the church. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We see that they're also given the role of deacons in the church. The first seven verses is about the overseers or elders, and the next few verses after that are about the deacons. It says in 1 Timothy 3, 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. You see, it can't be a lady there. The husband of one wife. Now, why did God give that role to men? I do not really know. But he did. We know it's not because men are smarter than women. Amen, brothers? Amen, ladies? I heard a few of you already. (laughs) I don't know why, but he gave that role. I don't know why he gave the role to women for childbearing, gave the role to women for other things that he didn't give guys. I'm thankful for that one, by the way, though. I've watched five kids come into the world, and there's no way I could do it. My wife is the strongest person in our family, no doubt. But he gives different roles. This keeps in the order of creation. In fact, we see it in 1 Timothy chapter 2. As Paul's talking to Timothy in verse 11 on. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she shall be saved through childbearing. Again, I don't understand. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I mean, I understand the general ideas here, but I don't understand why you would choose to do it that way. He's an infinite God. Make sure about some clear things too, though. God is not forbidding women from speaking in church absolutely in this text. It looks like it. If you look just at this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you think, man, he's, it's all done, right? But that's not the case. Just before this, that's why it's important to read the whole letter. Just before this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see that it's, not that way. And even other places like Titus. Like, listen, Titus 2, 3 through 5. We see women can teach in the church. He says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. There it is. They are to teach what is good. And so, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And I recognize the word submission and submissive is there. I, I see it, ladies. I know you don't like it. Nobody likes that word applied to them. But it's good, and we'll see why in a few minutes. We also see in 1 Corinthians 11, I just referred to, we see that women can pray and prophesy in the correct order and way, keeping in line with that created order. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see this. Starting in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. I want to make sure you understand this. Every one of us is under authority. Whether we submit to Jesus or not, we're all under the authority of God. And he's saying here that the wife's authority is the husband, and the husband's authority is Jesus, and Jesus' authority is the Father. We all have an authority. Unless you are God himself, and we are not. You all have an authority. We all have an authority. Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covering dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she would cut her hair short. She should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair off or shave her head, let her her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. 
That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, none of us are living by that text right now, I don't think, unless you count the mask. Here's what it goes on there, though, right? This is another sermon, another teaching about studying the Bible, but let me just hit it real fast to say this. You don't have to do it the same way in that culture to show authority, but you show authority by showing deference to your husband and supporting him and loving him, by not speaking against him to other women, by not talking bad about him in front of other people, by not denigrating him in those ways. That's the ways you can show authority. And sitting there and loving your husband and doing it in all kinds of ways at home or in public and church as we gather, you don't have to worry if you've got short hair, long hair, shaved hair anymore. That was a thing in that culture. It was a cultural issue there, not anymore now. I don't believe. Many commentaries back that play. But what we see is crazy here is verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies, and then verse 5, but every wife who prays or prophesies. That's in the context of the gathering. Okay, so it's not talking about everything. So you can read Scripture. You can say a truth. You can share a truth the Lord has worked in your heart. You can, you can share a testimony of the Word of God. You, you can pray. You can do those things. When it comes to the preaching of the word, the exposing of the scriptures, that is exclusively for men. Again, I don't know why, but that's the way the role has been given. Let me remind you again, women are equal in value in essence, but are given different roles in the authority of the church. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. That doesn't mean absolutely, because he says earlier, other ways they are to pray, and they are also to prophesy sometimes. We see that in Acts 2. We see that in Acts 21. Where a guy's got four daughters who are prophetesses. They do that. They speak the truth. So what are we talking about? Given the context, I think what we're talking about is that these women were interrupting the flow of worship and the preaching of the word, and they weren't prophets. They weren't supposed to be weighing this the same way the prophets were to do. They didn't have that role in the authority. Women were not to take positions of authority like elders and overseers in the church in role or in action. This includes preaching and teaching the word of God to men. And that may sound hard or harsh, but let's interpret this a little bit for our application here. This has been we do, this, we do all these pieces, observe, interpret, apply. Today we're doing apply right now, but our big thing is interpret. We've talked about how to do that. But now we have to apply this text to now. So well, how do we do this? Well, let me give you a few pieces as we get going along. So does the Bible say that women should not preach or teach at this, like, like I'm doing right now? Yes, I think it does. Does it mean being totally silent all the time and not speaking and just to walk six feet behind their husband and just do it? No, that's not saying that. They can pray, they can prophesy at certain points in time, but definitely teach other ladies, children. Why is this important then? Why do we have to abide by this? Why, do, why should we do that? Well, let me give you four reasons, and I'm going to lead us to one more text. Number one, we are a people of the book. Amen? We're people of the Word of God. And God has declared for some reason that men would have certain roles and women would have other certain roles. But the Bible is our standard. For the glory of God, this is our standard. This is what we understand is truly the word of God and we will abide by. And God is sovereign, not only in his saving us, not only in providing his self-revelation to us, but also in his ordering of creation and in his ordering of the church. And so we trust him in that because he is way wiser than we are, infinitely so. Thirdly, the church is God's church. 
You may have forgotten that sometimes. I forget it sometimes. It's not my church. It's not your church. We're a part of it. This is our family in that way. But he owns the church. He bought it in the blood of Jesus. The precious blood of Jesus for us. He bought it. We are his. Whatever he wants of us, we are his. He owns us. He saved us out of the depths of hell before we even went there by the precious blood of his son on the cross who died for us. So whatever role he gives us, yes, Lord. You want me to clean the latrine? You, you want me to, to take out the trash? You want me to scrub the floors of the toothbrush? Yes, Lord. For you have saved me from hell out of the depths of my sin. Yes, Lord, I will do it. Whatever that role is. And we elevate one role over another. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, Let's take childbearing as an example that's mentioned here in the scriptures. A woman can give birth to a child. I've already said I don't ever want to have to do that, but it is beautiful. And man, what is more to be like God than to bring life into the world? A child. Some women can't do that and aren't able to do that. It doesn't diminish their value. God loves them just as much. He gives them other roles to lead in and to serve in and to bring up other women in the ways of the Lord. There are no devaluing things here if you don't get that particular role, even if it's a declared role for you. Not all men will be elders or pastors or overseers. Not all men will be deacons. Not all men will be anything in particular. But we know that some roles are meant for women and some for men. It's just the way it is. I don't know how that works, but I know this is his church. Whatever he says goes. And his ruling does not diminish anyone's value. But whether or not we obey God can steal from his glory. That's why this is important. Not because I or anyone else is more valuable than anybody else. But because we obey and he receives glory, we disobey, and it's us trying to rob him of his glory. Like we know better than the one who created us. And even if it does not always make perfect sense as to why God would do something... We can and should always trust him because he's always proved himself over and over and over and over. And he mostly proved himself by sending us Jesus. If you think about it, the gospel itself doesn't even really make sense on that level. God created man and woman and put them in a garden and said, hey, just love me and do whatever you want to do here except eat of this one tree. Just be with me. He would walk with them. And they decided in their hearts that they needed to be like him. They needed more. It wasn't enough. So they sinned against him. And now we've inherited a sinful state from them. And because we sin, he should have immediately destroyed them. He should immediately destroy us. A perfect, holy, loving God. Listen, I'm going to the beach soon. Praise the Lord. We haven't been out of the house hardly at all. I'm going to go get see some sand. And I'm real excited about that. And if I decide to build a sand castle on the beach, whether it be two feet tall, ten feet tall if I could do it, or an inch tall, it's awesome. People love it. When it's time and I want to, I can run through that thing and kick it down, and I'm not wrong for doing so because I made it. Amen? Yeah? How much greater is God's ability to determine what happens when he created things, I, I, I created something out of something already provided for me that somebody else gave me. He created everything ex nihilo. Out of nothing, he created all things. So he is perfectly right to condemn us and send us to hell for all eternity. Yet instead, he 
He loved us so much that he sent his one and only son. The son who's worth more than all of creation. Does it make sense to take him and put him into creation? Not only that, but not just to come here to like lord and domineer over us, but to become one of us to serve us, even to the point of death on the cross. It makes no sense. But it makes perfect sense in the economy and wisdom of God. Because he's all-knowing, and he's all-righteous, and all-good. He loved us so much over and above our sin that he would give us Jesus. The one worth more than all of creation, the one who never did anything wrong to die the death we deserve so that we could be brought into his family. The one who is the king of kings, the king of the universe, sent to serve sinners, serve rebels by dying for them on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. If he can take that role on, we can take whatever role he gives us. Amen? And then none of the roles are bad. Whatever role he calls us to, that's our role and that is good. Some people in my profession, they, they ask, Lord, I want a big church. I want to see thousands come to faith. Sometimes my heart goes there. But then I recognize how much I've been saved from. Lord, just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus every day. I deserve not him or anything else. Please give me Jesus. And every day he fulfills his promise. What a glorious God we serve. These things here in these scriptures about women and, and speaking or not speaking, this, should, this has been used over and over and over again to beat women over the head, to denigrate and to destroy and to hammer and that is not the word of God in the way it should be used. This should never be stated or used to dominate over women. Never. Women, women are God's final touch on creation. Everything was perfect and right, and everything in the world was good. And he said, needs one more thing. And he created woman and looked back and said, it is finished. And he rested. No role changes that value. No lack of role, brothers, changes your value. Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That's a hard, hard, hard command. Especially for us who are doofuses a lot of time. Amen? You don't have to say that loud. I'll say it for us all. We are. Verse 25, brother, says this to us. Husbands, and I fail all the time. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. My role here as the lead pastor is seen by so many as the top of the chain. That's inverted in the gospel. My role is to serve every single last one of you and praying for you ceaselessly, calling you out as brothers and sisters when you sin, seeking your reconciliation to the Lord and to this church, leading you to follow, begging you to chase after the Lord because he's chased after us by sending us Christ. 
This is our role. This is all of our roles. No matter who we are, our role is to serve one another as Christ has served the church. Brothers, how much greater would our wives' roles be in our lives if we would love them like Jesus has loved the church? Let us endeavor to die to self every day for the sake of the building up of our wives and the building up of our families and the building up of this church. Let us die to self and say, not what I want, whatever you say in your word, yes, Lord, we will do. Whatever you say, let us not waste our lives on trivial things. Let us not waste our lives on things that will not matter for the kingdom. A hundred years from now, the only thing that's going to matter is your relationship with Jesus and everybody else's relationship with Jesus. How you treated your wives, how you led your children. We need to repent today, brothers. We need to become more like Jesus today and every day. And ladies, I beg you, submit to your husbands in the same way that Christ submitted himself to serve us. Do that for the glory of the Lord. It even says in Scripture in hopes that when your husband doesn't live this way, that he would see how you love him in that way as Christ loved the church, and that he would repent and believe. Our submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what presupposes this passage even in Ephesians 5 verse 21 says it that way. Out of reverence for Christ, submit to one another. Let us love one another and do whatever he calls us to do because he alone knows. He alone is worthy. He alone gives us value. And he has given us so much value because he bought us with the blood of Jesus, which is infinite in its value. And so you, brothers and sisters, are worth more than you can possibly imagine. And everything in this world is yours already. So let us serve one another with grace and mercy, and kindness for the glory of the Lord who served us with the utmost grace and mercy and kindness for His glorious name to be made much of. When we love each other like that, Scriptures tell us the world will know that we have been with Jesus. It's the greatest apologetic of our faith. They will know that we are His because of how we love one another. So yes, it speaks here not to speak, ladies, into prophecies, into preaching. So what? The Lord has given you so many wonderful ways to serve Him. And pray for us who have the burden of doing this particular one. And we'll pray for you for all the burdens you have. Because your job is way harder in so many ways. I want to pray for us all now. Lord, I thank you. I thank you. I thank you, Lord that you have been good to us by giving us Jesus. Whatever role you give us, Lord, the weight of those roles, the, the overwhelming nature of those roles, Lord, I thank you for them because you have deemed us not worthy, but you have deemed us objects of your affection and you want us to work with you as you serve us in your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for letting us serve you. It brings my heart and mind to the attention of my children who want to walk with me and help me in the yard and who want to help me with things around the house and who want to, to help us as we get ready to leave the house. Lord, you know how big, big of an undertaking that is. And Lord, you, you give them to us and we can so quickly push them aside. But God, that's, that's, that's what you do for us. You bring us along and you let us participate. So Lord, thank you for what you give us in participating with you. I pray today that you will edify this body, you will build up this body for the sake of your glorious name, for the building up of your church, and for the saving of souls in this community and around the world. Lord, specifically help our men lead in this church in a way that's always intended to be a position of serving like Jesus. Lord, help us as men lead in our homes 
in the way that's always meant to image Jesus and to sacrificially serve our wives out of love and respect so that they might be shaped into the image of Christ. They might know the love of Jesus through us. But Lord, it falls on us to lead in that way. Oh, the burden, Lord, but oh, the gracious kindness of your Holy Spirit who leads and convicts us. Lead us now to repent today, Lord, to fall into your arms, to recognize our dependence on you and to give you the glory as you make us into your image. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet, and we pray that this sermon helped you to be more like Jesus as 12th Street seeks to be a place where we can find forgiveness for the past and hope for the future.